going to start with something that might seem somewhat odd, but I will connect it to Oscar Wilde in a bit. Because what we're at is, uh, in the life of the mind, we're on session five of the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. There was paper, and I think most of you got that um, from me. It was a stack over there on the desks. But if you didn't get that, um, Dad's kind of over there by it right now. <laughs> You're going on the, yeah, put some of the piano. So anyways, um, Dad's got some, some handouts, and if you didn't grab that on the way, we're going to do Oscar Wilde, and this is the idea where aesthetics becomes ethics. Um, the idea that art or beauty or a life well-lived is inherently justifying for itself, if that makes any sense. So it's a really interesting time. Um, there's a lot of kind of cultural history that goes behind this. So that's why I'm going to give you something a little weird. And I'm, intention I'm intentionally starting with something. And I'm not necessarily endorsing everything on this YouTube channel. You'll see why here in a second. But I want to show you this because I think the person they got for this, who is an artist, explains this well. And he has a provocative title, which is, Why is Modern Art So Bad? <laughs> and it does take a worldview. And I think he's onto something without knowing he's onto something. This is what I mean. In other words, the reason he is describing this in this, in this, uh, this little four-minute video, I show this to all my high school students uh, when we do History of the Arts, and I use it as my selling point. I was like, you ever wondered why we went from the Mona Lisa to, like, a 30-pound rock? Like, what happened? You know what I'm saying? Like, what happened? And so he's going to walk through that a little bit. Oscar Wilde and the rise of the modern self is one of the reasons that happens. Okay, And so the idea that people that are artists or people that are composers or people that are poets or, or authors can get away with stuff that other people can't get away with as long as they're being authentic. Why? Right? You know, that's, that's, that's the question. Why does that happen? And where can we kind of address that in the culture? Because it's very ubiquitous. Everybody kind of talks about that. Go ahead. I don't know if you saw it. Like a couple weeks ago, there was a report out that somebody paid like $80,000 for an art thing and they got a blank canvas and they called it art. Yeah, oh yeah. And there's one where there's a light going on and off. I mean, there's a whole, he'll give you a couple examples, actually. He'll give you a couple examples. Some of them are a little crude, but you'll see why. So here we go. Why is modern art so, art so bad? This again, sounds weird that I'm starting here, but you'll see why once we get to it. Here we go. This is my warm up for the day, so to speak. The Mona Lisa. I had to do it this way. The Mona Lisa, the Pietà, the girl with a pearl earring. For a score of centuries, artists enriched Western society with their works of astonishing beauty. The Night Watch, the Thinker, the Rocky Mountains. Master after master, from Leonardo to Rembrandt to Bierstadt, produced works that inspired, uplifted, and deepened us. And they did this by demanding of themselves the highest standards of excellence, improving upon the work of each previous generation of masters and continuing to aspire to the highest quality attainable. But something happened on the way to the 20th century. The profound, the inspiring, and the beautiful were replaced by the new, the different, and the ugly. Today, the silly, the pointless, and the purely offensive are held up as the best of modern art. Michelangelo carved his David out of a rock. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art just offers us a rock. A rock. All 340 tons of it. That's how far standards have fallen. How did this happen? How did the thousand-year ascent towards artistic perfection and excellence die out? It didn't. It was pushed out. Beginning in the late 19th century, a group dubbed the Impressionists rebelled against the French Academy de Beaux-Arts and its demand for classical standards. Whatever their intentions, the new modernists sowed the seeds of aesthetic relativism, 
the beauty is in the eye of the beholder mentality. Today, everybody loves the Impressionists. And as with most revolutions, the first generation or so produced work of genuine merit. Monet, Renoir, and Degas still maintained elements of disciplined design and execution. But with each new generation, standards declined until there were no standards. All that was left was personal expression. The great art historian Jacob Rosenberg wrote that quality in art is not merely a matter of personal opinion, but to a high degree objectively traceable. But the idea of a universal standard of quality in art is now usually met with strong resistance, if not open ridicule. How can art be objectively measured unchallenged? In responding, I simply point to the artistic results produced by universal standards compared to what is produced by relativism. The former gave the world the birth of Venus and the dying Gaul, while the latter has given us the Holy Virgin Mary, fashioned with cow dung and pornographic images, and Petra, the prize-winning sculpture of a policewoman squatting and urinating, complete with a puddle of synthetic urine. Without aesthetic standards, we have no way to determine quality or inferiority. Here's a test I give my graduate students, all talented and well-educated. Please analyze this Jackson Pollock painting and explain why it is good. It is only after they give very eloquent answers that I inform them that the painting is actually a close-up of my studio apron. <laughs> I don't blame them. I would probably have done the same since it's nearly impossible to differentiate between the two. And who will determine quality is another challenge I'm given. If we are to be intellectually honest, we all know of situations where professional expertise is acknowledged and depended upon. Take figure skating in the Olympics, where artistic excellence is judged by experts in the field. Surely we would flinch at the contestant who indiscriminately threw himself across the ice and demanded that his routine be accepted as being as worthy of value as that of the most disciplined skater. Not only has the quality of art diminished, but also the subject matter has gone from the transcendent to the trashy. Where once artists applied their talents to scenes of substance and integrity from history, literature, religion, mythology, etc., Many of today's artists merely use their art to make statements, often for nothing more than shock value. Artists of the past also made statements at times, but never at the expense of the visual excellence of their work. It's not only artists who are at fault. It is equally the fault of the so-called art community, the museum heads, gallery owners, and the critics who encourage and financially enable the production of this rubbish. It is they who champion graffiti and call it genius promote the scatological and call it meaningful. It is they who, in reality, are the naked emperors of art. For who else would spend $10 million on a rock and think it is art? But why do we have to be victims of all this bad taste? We don't. By the art we patronize at museums or purchase at galleries, we can make our opinions not only known but felt. An art gallery, after all, is a business like any other. If the product doesn't sell, it won't be made. We can also support organizations like the Art Renewal Center that work to restore objective standards to the art world. And we can advocate the teaching of classical art appreciation in our schools. Let's celebrate what we know is good and ignore what we know is not. By the way, the white background you see behind me is not simply a white graphic backdrop. It is a pure white painting 
by noted artist Robert Rauschenberg at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Okay, so that's kind of how that ends. And then they do some advertisements. Now I show you that for a reason. Now he's being snarky on purpose, obviously. But the point is, is obviously something shifted, right? We were in the 19th century and then all of a sudden, and you can see like initially it doesn't hit. It's just after some time, artistic standards fall and we have something called artistic relativism, right? Aesthetic relativism, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder because after all, you're only accountable to yourself. Sound familiar? Again, that's the modern self, the expressive individual because you have to express on the outside what you're feeling on the inside. And the only way to be psychologically happy is to have that inner sense of well-being. So you're only accountable to yourself. It's the cult of authenticity. So if being authentic to yourself is a huge rock, then that's being authentic to yourself. And who can judge somebody else's self-expression? Because after all, they're only accountable to them and you're only accountable to you. So who are you to judge? You see where this comes? And so this is very much tied into the modern self. And this is why we're gonna to get to Oscar Wilde in Truman's work is because of this sort of thing, thinking. So really up until the 1800s, most art was actually outwardly directed, meaning they were trying to please a king or a prince, they're trying to please church authorities or a government or a city official, or they're trying to uh, make people better. The ancient Greeks viewed art didactically, meaning they thought it made people better. So in other words, when you went, went to a play, there was like a moral to the story. And so when you left, you were supposed to be improved as a person. Does that make sense? Now it's more like, have they shocked you? Did they, you know what I'm saying? Have they expressed themselves? Wasn't that provocative how they, you know, had this uh, kind of like uh, zombie apocalypse vision of American capitalism? Like, you know what I mean? This, it's really odd for the ancient Greeks. It was like, see the tragedy that those guys went through? Don't be like them. You see what I mean? That's how the Greeks thought, right? That was very much, and the chorus does it, by the way. The chorus is in the Greek drama going, hey, don't do that thing. Don't do that thing. And the, the, the hero's like, I'm going to do that thing. And then he gets, his life is a wreck. And the chorus sends back and stands in the background saying, I told you so, <laughs> right? And the Greeks taught their listeners very subtly, but that they taught it was to make people better. It was actually a religious experience to go to the theater because they were trying to improve themselves. It was a way to make their democracy better. That's honestly how they thought. When they made a statue that was in perfect form, you saw the dying Gaul there, that was Roman propaganda. But Greco-Roman statues had the idea of, this is the ideal form of a human being. This is something to shoot for. You see what I mean? So it had objective standards. And if you didn't think that a column or a statue was beautiful, I've said this before, the fault was with you, not with the statue. See how it's outwardly focused, that it exists independent of people? That's a big thing. The same thing happens in music. I'm going to give you some quotes, and I'm going to end on this with Oscar Wilde. Check this out. Let's see. Here we go. So let's go to the beginning. Let's see, from current slides. So this is, of course, my understanding of Times intro. I just had to start with that video there. But I want to show you a couple of quotes about music. I'm going to start with Bach, who's kind of the quintessential uh, Baroque composer. This is his goal. The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. That is somebody who is outwardly focused, right? Because it's God and then the refreshment of the soul. He doesn't mean his own soul. He's talking about all the listeners. Okay, so refreshing the soul and then the glory of God. Both are outwardly focused. Do you see what's going on here? He has another quote here, right? I have always kept one end in view, namely to conduct a well-regulated church music to the honor of God. Notice the word well-regulated. What, there's standards? There's workmanship, there's craftsmanship. You see what he's saying? Well-regulated, not self-expressive church music to the glory of, but well-regulated church music. 
Okay, Bach's writing these things in the 1700s. This is the early 1700s, think 1720s, 1730s, around that era. He's, of course, a Lutheran church composer. But other musicians at this time say very similar things. They were trying to keep their opera uh, going. So they had to do something to make money. Otherwise, nobody would buy tickets. So they're accountable to an audience, right? Does that make sense? So whether it's an audience, whether it's a king, a church official, or God himself, it was outwardly focused. And that's an important thing. Okay, even Beethoven, it was not the fortuitous meeting of the chordal atoms that made the world. If order and beauty are reflected in the constitution of the universe, then there is a God. So this is, he dies in 1827. So even though he's a child of the Enlightenment, there's still kind of an outward focus. Are you with me on this? In other words, there is a God that we're accountable to, and there's a, such a thing as objective beauty, that when we look at the universe, we can know that God exists. And Beethoven is considered the first romantic, but even he's still talking this way. But as the 18th century, I mean, 19th century unfolds, we get later and later, and we get to the people like Nietzsche and Marx and Darwin and all these big figures we've been talking about, the arts change. And Wilde, his view of things is going to change. Look at the difference. So again, I'll show you this. The honor of, right, the well-regulated church music to the honor of God. We have order and beauty reflected in the constitution of the universe, right? Listen to Oscar Wilde. Works of art are not capable of being moral or immoral, but only well or poorly made. Do you see the shift? You're not accountable to somebody outside now. It's just as long as you do it well and as long as you're authentic, it's not moral or immoral. It's just art. Art is just art. Art for art's sake. That's a shift that takes place with Oscar Wilde. And that's going to be our topic today through Carl Truman. So I wanted to show you those quotes because you saw that opening video there and you saw these composers. And I, I'm somebody who teaches arts appreciation. That's my undergraduate degree. Before I got my master's in theology, before I got certified in social studies and all these other different things, was in music history and literature. So it was like the history of the arts, basically only in music, right? And so I'm telling you, this shift that takes place in the 1800s is a big, big deal. We call this the War of the Romantics. You have romantics that wanted to maintain classical standards, represented by people like Brahms or Mendelssohn, you'll recognize some of these names, and then people who just wanted to be true. The artist was revolutionary and recreate art itself, represented by people like Richard Wagner or Liszt and others. And in the long run, the new school won. Okay, and that's what, and you'll, you, you know what I'm saying? And it doesn't mean that they, the, kind of like he, the, uh, the first guy that we watched, it's not like everything that the Impressionists did was automatically bad. They have some genuinely good things, right? But after generation after generation, right, you see, because they still kind of have the residual, re residual culture with them, right? But as it kind of goes away and you get generation after generation, then the standards really do start to fall, right? It's probably not by accident he put the line, bottom of the line in the 1960s. Did you catch that? <laughs> and then just flat from there. Um, that's probably a political message. So, you know, I'm not going to say much more on that. But that's kind of what he does there uh, in his little graph. But in music, you can trace that, too. Um, once you get to the, the 1890s or so um, with the death of bronze, there is a huge shift in the way music is understood and what music's for. How often do you hear, I don't really care what the structure is as long as it's meaningful. Or I don't care what it's, I don't care what the standards are. I just want him to be genuine. I just want to be moved emotionally, right? Because now it becomes subjective. It's in the listener or in the creator rather than actual objective standards. I loved his analogy of the, of the person just throwing themselves on the, state, on the ice. You have to express my artistic, you have to accept my artistic expression. Nobody would accept that in the Olympics or in gymnastics, right? Something like that. Why do we accept that in the arts then? See what I mean? One of the reasons is from people like Oscar Wilde and Oscar Wilde is going to give us some of that background. So I'm going to show I'm going to show you that again. So that's how I want to show you those quotes. And then we'll, you have an outline for you. 
And we'll talk about the Christian worldview as it, as it, as it approaches this. So let me pull up my other video as I go back here. Beard, real, really quick. Yeah, go for it's it. It's ironic how art translates or correlates well with just the technical standards of just engineering. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so obvious that without standards, there's defects. Yeah. And it degrades itself. And so how, how is art not, I mean, how do they see it that terribly working? I mean, this is why. You're going to see with Oscar Wilde, okay? Because it's about authentic, again, it's about the inner expression, self-expression. Self-expression is more important than anything outside of yourself. It's the, it, remember, remember, the psychological, psychological self, right? Inner sense of well-being. And the true artist is one who expresses himself the most authentically. Basically, your entire life becomes performance art. And then you wonder why celebrities take selfies all the time, and right? You know, and stuff like this. The reason we assume those things about a rock star or a movie star and all that stuff... Oscar Wilde and others like him, this is the end of the 1800s into the 1900s, really kind of emphasizes, but I'm with you. In particular for you, Luther, as somebody who's engineering, architecture is one in particular that I think you would recognize on that one because architecture, you know, classical standards or medieval standards, you know, we can go through all these different things, the neoclassical movement. Once you get to some of this, I should show you, there's a, there's a I, I won't do it in class because I don't want to make anybody mad politically or anything. Um, there's a, I can say this, Google the 50, the, the ugliest building in every state. Just, do, just Google that sometime, and some of them are really bad. There's like a KFC in Los Angeles that is really bad. Okay, for example, um, there's a couple of college buildings um, that are listed. There's a couple of government buildings. It's Boston City Hall looks like brutalist Stalinist architecture. It's just, for some reason, I mean, it looks like a prison for City Hall. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know who, who's the designer there, but I mean, you can go through these different things. And so I tell my students all the time, um, this is me being provocative a little bit, but I'll tell my students, I was like, don't apologize for holding to a standard. If somebody says, oh, that's just your opinion, say, okay, where, where, does your, where does your opinion come from? And they'll say, well, this is just what's meaningful for me. And I was like, okay, what's meaningful for me then is that we have legitimate standards. And then usually it doesn't go anywhere. But I mean, it's like, you, you, I was like, stand up for yourself. I was like, stop being pushed around by this sort of stuff because this can't, it, nobody truly holds to these sort of ways of thinking consistently in their entire life. But in areas like religion, morality, music, arts, we want to live there because it's so meaningful for us individually because it has such transcendent meaning that we want to attach ourselves and we want to justify it. And the easiest way to justify it is say, well, it's just meaningful for me without actually having to think through. So it's, I think it's intellectual laziness personally, but that's just, that's just me. All right, let's go to this uh, life of the mind. Let's go to Truman. You all have an outline. This is one of the most fascinating ones I think of the eight that he does because it really does explain a lot of what I would call pop culture that we all live in and that's ubiquitous everywhere, um, Wilde really does capture this. He's going to start off re recapping some of the stuff Nietzsche said. God is dead and we have killed him. Now what? Oscar Wilde is one of the answers to what do we do now. So going back to Nietzsche. Here we go. Yes, good. <laughs> you fast forward this a little bit. In our previous lecture, we looked at the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche and made the point there that he saw, and I think correctly saw, that if one gets rid of any sense of the sacred or the transcendent, if one gets rid of God, then everything changes. But at the heart of Nietzsche's thinking of, of what needed to be done in the aftermath of what he called the death of God, lay the figure of the self-creator or the artist. And it's that that I want to focus on in this lecture, particularly relative to 
Oscar Wilde, the 19th century Irish poet and wit. Wilde, in some ways, anticipates a number of interesting things about our current era. If you think about society today, if you think about our culture, we might say that uh, a couple of things stand out to us. One, real life is often seen as somehow a public performance. Think of social media and how much performing goes on on social media. We present images of ourselves as, as we like to think of ourselves so that other people can see us as we create ourselves. I think also of the flamboyant public display of, of sexuality, the modesty of previous generations, the, the sexual reserve in the public sphere of, sec, of previous generations is, is all but gone today. So real life is public performance and flamboyant public display of sexuality, two of the things that, that mark our world, often in rather crass ways, of course. Think of the crudity of much reality tele television. Think of the advent and role of camp in pop culture. Think also of the implications this has had, for example, the way we think morally. Think of how what we might call aesthetics, notions of beauty, have come to dominate ethics, the way we think about what is right and wrong. Think of the red carpet at the Oscars, for example, when you see the actors and actresses and the Hollywood elite parading on the red carpet. You know, ask yourself, how many abortions, how many affairs, how many broken families, how much human wickedness is represented by those people who parade on the red carpet? And yet, is there not something in all of us that aspires to be them? because their beauty, their wealth, their, their outward aesthetics really trump any kind of moral thinking we have. Aesthetics as ethics has become the air that we breathe. And Oscar Wilde is a key figure in all of this. We might in fact say that Oscar Wilde is the greatest, certainly I think the most sophisticated example of the Nietzschean ideal of the self as a piece of art, of life as an artwork. Who was he? Well, his dates were 1854 to 1900. In his own day, he was renowned as a sparkling wit. Even today, many of his quips are still well known. I have a few of them here. Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination. And then I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. He was also the writer of witty plays and the author of a dark and disturbing novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which remains popular even today. But in his own day, he also became infamous for his homosexuality at a time when homosexuality in England was actually illegal. Specifically, he had an affair with the son of the Marquess of Queensbury, a young man called Lord Alfred Douglas, a minor poet. And it was this affair that was ultimately to prove Wilde's undoing. Wilde made the mistake of suing Queensbury for libel. And he famously lost the case. But in the process of the court proceedings, his homosexuality was exposed in the public arena. And given that homosexuality was illegal at the time and subject to judicial penalty, 
Wilde was prosecuted and then spent nearly two years in prison. The experience broke him physically and he died a few years later, a tragic exile in the city of Paris. Today, his plays are occasionally performed. His witty one-liners, as I've said, are still quoted on occasion. And his novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, remains a popular staple. But he looms larger, perhaps, as somebody who captures the zeitgeist of our modern world, the spirit of the age. To quote the cultural historian, Mordris Eckstein's, on the culture of the, 21st, of the 20th century, the sexual rebel, particularly the homosexual, became a central figure in the imagery of revolt, especially after the ignominious treatment Oscar Wilde received at the hands of the establishment. Wilde's experience as one persecuted and punished for his sexuality has made him something of an icon and indeed a precursor of much that is now considered of value in our own culture. Today, I want to make just three basic points about Wilde that connect to the overall narrative of this lecture series. I want to reflect upon his notion of the individual as being an artist. I want to reflect upon his notion of the amorality of art. And I want to reflect briefly on the consequent aestheticization of ethics to which I've already alluded. The individual as artist, the amorality of art, the consequent aestheticization of ethics and morals. First then, the individual as artist. Nietzsche, go back to our friend Nietzsche. Nietzsche was the one who said that the death of God really demanded a revaluation of everything. And at the center of that revaluation stood man himself. And the question, of course, becomes for Nietzsche, well, if life is intrinsically meaningless, if there is no transcendence to life, is it still worthwhile? And Nietzsche's answer is yes, in a strange way, it's still worthwhile. One should live every moment as if it was going to come back for all eternity. Be yourself. Create yourself. Don't answer to some mythical transcendent authority. Don't conform yourself to the crowd. <clears throat> be an individual. Be whoever you want to be. This lay at the heart of Nietzsche's notion of the Ubermensch or the Superman. Now, the fate of Nietzsche's philosophy after his death is a long and rather tawdry story. He's appropriated to some extent by the Nazis under Adolf Hitler. And, of course, the notion of the Superman, at least in the popular mind, the notion of the Nietzschean Superman has come, become to be correlated with the idea of some sort of racially supreme individual. But that's not what Nietzsche was really getting at in his original notion of the Superman. For Nietzsche, he's more likely to have had in mind a figure like Goethe, the great German playwright and poet, novelist, uh, than some kind of Nazi Aryan super being. Goethe was the supreme artist, the great man of letters, the great creator. He would have been the kind of person that Nietzsche would have seen anticipating his own ideal for humanity. And Wilde's whole life, Oscar Wilde's whole life. As some context for those of you who know literature, Goethe wrote um, a version of Faust that's in huge parts. He also wrote something called The Struggles or Trials of Young Werther. It's about a guy who has unrequited love and at the end actually commits suicide. 
and people were dressing up like his character, like all these like aristocrats and others. They were like dressed, it was like original cosplay. If you know what cosplay is where people dress up like comic book characters. Original cosplay, people dressed up like young Werther. It was like a certain waistcoat with certain colored buttons and certain boots, and they would all dress like him. So he was a bit of a sensation. Goethe is a weird figure because he's kind of an enlightenment figure also. So he's not quite a romantic, but he's not quite a rom uh, an enlightenment figure either. But he's what what uh, what Truman is saying here is Goethe kind of anticipates, not that he's it fully, but anticipates the sort of people that Nietzsche would have admired. You hear where he's going with this. So it's not saying that Goethe's this. He's saying that he's the sort of figure. But if you've ever heard of Faust, that's the guy who sells his soul to the devil for the pleasures of youth. He kind of recreates that story in two huge parts, very thick literature. Um, if you have doc ask Dr. Dillon, who teaches up here, she does not like reading Faust. It's thick reading. And she's, you know, she's German. And she still doesn't like reading it. So I'm just telling you, it's, th it's thick reading. Okay, that's that's my point. Um, and then this Trials of Young Werther. He also has some poems and plays that are sometimes done. Um, I showed you Beethoven earlier. Um, there's a play called Egmont about uh, this kind of like political prisoner in Denmark that Beethoven wrote a famous uh, series of uh, pieces of music um, and overture and some other things for it. So Goethe's in that kind of transitionary fit, uh, period. And like I said before, in those transitionary periods, a generation or two, it's still pretty good. You get what I'm saying? It's afterwards you see the fruit of it that it really starts, the wheels start to come off. But that's who Goethe is. If you don't know who Goethe is, very huge fundamental um, kind of European figure, enlightenment figure, lived a really long life. So he often bridges a lot of gaps, knew tons of people, was friends with lots of famous folks, both in princes and military figures and artists. And he was just very, very, very well-traveled at the time. So just reminding you from a historical standpoint what we're talking about. I'll let him continue. Oh, and if you didn't get the blanks, this is since we paused. Um, first couple, real life now seen as public performance, right? I love how, did you see all the people taking selfies? That was pretty good, okay? Flamboyance or public display of sexuality. Um, that's a huge one, right? You don't just do things that are heterosexual or homosexual. You are those things and you dress that way, act like that way, advertise that way, put it in your social media profile, organize yourself politically, right? It's become a something where you, this is who I am rather than this is something that I do. See the difference? That's a huge thing as part of our culture. And so that's what he has for number two. And then, of course, that word zeitgeist in German, the spirit of the times or spirit of the age, right? So then the, another three points about wild. What, right now what we're at is the individual as artist. Okay, so that's the first one. That's where we're at right now. Was devoted to precisely that kind of artistic self-creation that Nietzsche seems to have seen as lying at the heart of the Superman. From the way he talked to the way he dressed, everything for wild was a matter of supreme self-creation. Fit Reef. The psychological sociologist says this about Wilde. For Wilde, the artist is the truly revolutionary figure. Only the artist, Wilde seems to have think, thought, can lead humanity into the next culture, the one that must arise after the Nietzschean death of God. Wilde puts it this way in his famous essay, his famous confessional essay, De Profundis, Out of the Depths. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions. Their lives are mimicry. Their passions are quotation. What is Wilde saying there? Most people live other people's lives. We're not ourselves. We don't take responsibility for ourselves. We simply go along to get along with how everybody else behaves, dresses, looks, speaks. What Wilde is calling for here is a Nietzschean call 
for self-creation. Some ways he's anticipating the thinking of later existentialists. Sartre, of course, famously says that our existence precedes our essence. What our bare existence, we might say, is simply the foundation for our essence, what we care or choose to make of ourselves. That's kind of what Nat Wilde is alluding to here. Most people are other people. They simply conform. For Wilde, no, the great figure, the great artist is one who does not conform. He offers theoretical expression for this in, of all places, an essay with the title, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. That's kind of odd because for most of us, socialism speaks of conformity. It speaks of masses rather than individuals. We tend to contrast the, the socialist with the rugged individual. Wilde's politics, while somewhat fanciful and romantic, a kind of anarchism couched in the language of socialism, are actually for him a foundation for this great artistic individual to flourish. He says this in a statement that to many of us sounds incoherent or at least uh, very counterintuitive. Socialism, he says, itself will be of value simply because it will lead to individualism. Socialism will be of value simply because it leads to individualism. And the vision that lies behind this is his ideal of the good life. Goes on to say this, the state is to make what is useful. The individual is to make what is beautiful. And then in a very provocative moment, he goes on to say this, the fact is that civilization requires slaves. The Greeks were quite right there. Unless there are slaves to do the ugly, horrible, uninteresting work, culture and contemplation be become almost impossible. Well, I'd say that's a terrible thing to say. While there seems to be justifying slavery. Well, that's not quite what he's doing in that moment, actually. What he's doing is this. He's saying slavery is what made Greek culture possible. The modern world, if we're going to have a modern world where the individual is able to express who they really are inside, is able to give public and social expression to who they are, to who they want to be, then we need others to be doing the boring stuff. And of course, Wilde lives in the 19th century, during the white heat of the Industrial Revolution. He himself was vigorously opposed to human slavery. And what he does, however, is envisage a future where machines will do all of the drudge work, freeing human beings up to truly be themselves. Human slavery, he says, is wrong, insecure and demoralizing. On mechanical slavery, on the slavery of the machine, the future of the world depends. The good life, if you like, is the life spent creating beauty. And therefore the ideal person is the artist, the one who makes themselves into a beautiful work of art by their own actions in producing beauty for the sake of beauty. Wilde would say to you, be your own greatest work of art. So the artist for Wilde is the central figure of humanity. The artist, we might say, is the human being at his or her most human, because the artist is the one engaged in making themselves into something of beauty. And of course, as I've said, everything Wilde said or did or, or the way he dressed was all designed to try to achieve that kind of ideal 
in his own life. That leads me to my second point, the amorality of art. If Wilde is read today, it's probably because of his dark novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Plot is a relatively straightforward one. A beautiful young man is having his portrait painted and in a moment of weakness uh, declares that he wishes that he could stay ever young and that the picture itself would grow old instead. And that is what happens. Throughout the story, Dorian Gray lives a life of great wickedness and debauchery. He commits murder. He does all sorts of unspeakable things. And he remains a beautiful young man. And the portrait that he eventually hides in his attic slowly decays, showing in its features the ugliness of the life that he has chosen to lead. In the foreword to that book, Oscar Wilde says this, there is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. That's a direct hit against the view that literature, that art should be improving. I have on my bookshelves at home something called the Newgate Calendar. And it's a Victorian book that was put together and it's, it's to be read to children and it contains stories of great bad guys of history, Dick Turpin and company. And they all end up swinging on the gibbet. They all end up facing the penalty of their crimes. And the purpose of the book is this, you read it to your children and it morally improves them. That's the idea. Dick Turpin was rude to his mum. He ends up murdering somebody and hangs from the gibbet. That's the kind of lesson. Literature was moralizing. Wilde is rebelling against all of that kind of notion, saying, no, literature is either well-written or badly written. Those are the only criteria to be used. He's offering, if you like, a radical separation of art and life. The purpose of art becomes, in its purest form, something done purely for the pleasure of the artist. To a critic of Dorian Gray, he wrote this. I wrote this book entirely for my own pleasure, and it gave me very great pleasure to write it. Whether it becomes popular or not is a matter of absolute indifference to me. There is the creative individual, the Nietzschean individual, just doing his own thing and not caring about the response of the crowd to what he's done. He says much the same thing in his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. A true artist takes no notice whatsoever of the public. The public are to him non-existent. In short, the purpose of art is the aesthetic pleasure that it gives to the artist. Yet if you think about that, if the purpose of life is to be an artist, and if art is to be detached from morality as traditionally conceived, then we end up in a position where, and this is my third point, ethics are aestheticized. What is aesthetically beautiful becomes identified with that which is morally good. The implications of Wilde's thinking, the practical reality of the way he lived his own life, is that morality really became a matter of that which is tasteful and is governed by the idea of personal creative freedom. 
And it's that freedom, that freedom to be creative that's the key. Again, from the soul of man under socialism. A man cannot always be estimated by what he does. He may keep the law and yet be worthless. He may break the law and yet be fine. He may be bad without ever doing anything bad. He may commit a sin against society and yet realize through that sin his true perfection. That's the words of a man who has conflated aesthetics and ethics. That which is tasteful and beautiful is ultimately determinative of that which is morally good, not the other way around. Wilde also thought that marriage must go. That was a common theme from uh, Rousseau and the Romantics onwards. Marriage was seen as the way in which individuals were inhibited. To be committed to another meant in some ways one could not be committed to oneself. One's own freedom was hindered. An autonomous, uh, sorry, a heteronomous limit was placed upon the individual's ability to act on their own desires. To be married would be to make one less of a human being, less free, less of an artist. And morality itself, traditional morality itself, must fall before the centrality of freedom. Wilde says this, it does not matter what man is as long as he realizes the perfection of the soul that is within him. All imitation in morals and life is wrong. Go back to my first uh, lecture when I talked about the inner psychological sense being so important, expressive individualism. The inside has to be expressed outwardly. That's exactly what Wilde is talking about here. It does not matter what he is, as long as he realizes the perfection of the soul that is within him. As long, if you like, as he gives that inward psychological him, outward social expression. And notice, all imitation, he says here, in morals and life is wrong. In short, free artistic creation of the self, realization of me and who I think I am, is the only moral criteria and imperative in human life. We live very much in the world that Oscar Wilde helped create today. Think of the slack we typically grant to artists regarding morality. At least in the pre-hashtag Me Too moment, Roman Polanski, convicted child rapist. Yet that was overlooked by many in the artistic community. Why? Because he makes beautiful movies. He's a wildian. He's a wild man. Think, in way of which in, uh, think of the way in which artists frequently set the terms of cultural morality. Think of how artists often set themselves as moral iconoclasts relative to the moral standards of the past. These are all the sons and daughters of the way Oscar Wilde thought about the amorality of art and the aestheticization of ethics. In sum, Wilde represents life, identity, as public performance. We are who we are as we perform in public. He represents the prominence of art for art's sake and the focus on beauty, outward beauty, taste as determining that which is good, not on any kind of transcendent moral framework 
and he represents the man who perhaps most dramatically, wittily and entertainingly, aestheticized ethics. And of course, as I alluded at the start, he was the quintessential sexual rebel. And that brings us to the next stage in our story. We've looked at the rise of expressive individualism. We've seen what Marx and Nietzsche did with religion. We've seen the emergence of the self-creating artist, the free individual, essential to the modern world. But another question has to be answered. How is it that this has become so tied up with sex and sexuality? Well, that's going to be the subject of our next lectures, dealing respectively with Sigmund Freud and then the appropriation of Freud by political theory in the mid-20th century. All right, so the question I have for you, that discussion question, in what areas of your life do you see this thinking or the life of Wilde reflected in today's society? Yeah, go ahead. Last night I had an argument with myself on learning the quilt. Everything I've ever done in life, which is a lot, I make to give to somebody else or make to use. And I sat there and thought, you know what? I could just sit and make quilt tops for the fun of it, whether they ever end up being a blank to get used or not. And that's, I mean, now imagine living your whole life that way, not just a single item, right? We're like, everything is for you, not just one thing, everything. Your whole life is performance. Yeah, go for it. How people dress and tattoos and hairstyles and everything. Yeah, because you, you want to be as unique as possible. The example that I came up with is I want my kids to have really, really unique names. So I'm going to spell them incorrectly on purpose. Like, like that just, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about? That, 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 that's a really, it seems like a silly example. But it's like this idea that I want my child to be as unique as possible. And so because after all, why would I make them seem like they're conventional? They need to be creative on their own. So I'm going to come up with a creative name to show them how unique they are. You see what I mean? So it's like I'm going to spell, you know, like my, my son, Patrick. I just I will never forget this. When, when Patrick was born, like, how do you spell it? And I was like, well, Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, like normal. <laughs> oh, well, they're like, we got to ask because and I was like, oh, what did you want me to say? P-A-T-R-Y-C-U-I. You know, I mean, I was just like making some. <laughs> and they're like, well, they're like, trust me. They're like, you know, you know, these are the birthing nurses and stuff like that. They're like, this is happening all the time. Right. And so that was the example that I had is just even in the way we name our children before a name was like, oh, this was your grandfather's name or this is an important person in history, or this is a biblical figure, right? You know, like all of my, me and my siblings, we're all biblical names. So it's Aaron, Andrew, Adam, Abby. So Abigail, right? And they're all spelled conventionally, all biblical names, even my middle name, Daniel, right? All spelled. Now it's, how, how can I want to, I like this name. Or sometimes we just invent names just because we think they sound cool, right? But, but even the way we use language to me shows this kind of idea of self-creation. And then even when we have kids, we think they have to be self-created also. And so we give them a unique name. Oh, you can just spell it whatever you want, you know. Jackson with three X's or something. I mean, like, I mean, you, I mean, that's just that's just the example that I came up with that I see. And some kids, by the way, they don't like it. You guys just sit, sit. We're almost dead. She's taking care of her little brother here. It's good. All right. Um, if you didn't get the blanks here, by the way, number two, the amorality of art. Number three, the consequent aestheticization. That's a weird word of ethics and morals. He said at a different time. But the idea is, as long as it seems beautiful to you, it's therefore good. Yeah, go for it. More probably observation. So he talks about like marriage is not good. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, fine. If you're homosexual, you're not birthing children. What happens when you have children? You're not accountable to them anymore because it's about you. It's not about them. So who's accountable to the child? It's just they're on their own, or they're they're left to the state. They're on the state. <laughs> the legal system, basically. Yeah. 
Well, and the state, or the state takes care of them. Remember how he said the state does what's practical? Rousseau put them in orphanages. Remember this? Yeah, but how does that make for a good society? It's, it's in, in his sense, it's not necessarily, he would he would probably reject when we get to the 20th century in particular. About socialism. That's right, right, yeah. right, right. And so <laughs> that means the state's doing it, though. Yeah, That's right. the state. Or it's what's good for you. So even if it's not good for those kids, you're still being your authentic you. And if those kids are stopping you from being your authentic you, that's on them. And then I, struggle, I mean, or kids are fulfillment. I struggle right? with the one that does not conform anymore because I feel like in today's society, I don't conform to what is being pushed. Yeah. And I don't want to conform to what's being pushed. So I don't, but I don't feel like I'm. But you're, the difference, though, is you're conforming to a different standard, which is transcendent. You're wanting to conform to something that's even bigger than society, which is, you know what I'm saying, yeah. which is this transcendent order. So you're you're making yourself accountable. You might have a society that's trying to live like a bunch of individuals, like wild, and yet you're not conforming. What you're really trying to conform to is God's will, yeah. which is an even higher standard. So that's a little bit of a different, you know what I'm saying on that? That's yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's almost like it's almost like to be count to live according to God's will is to be countercultural. It's like, yeah, I'm with you. Where are you gonna add, Paul? Uh, yeah, uh, Friedrich uh, Engels, one of the Marxist. Right, Communist Manifesto yeah, co-author. He, he wrote a he, he wrote an essay. I, I've never seen it before, but said if you get the complete works, uh, it goes. It has a description of marriage, and so basically, in answer to your question, I'd say that uh, most of marriage deals with property relations. He lays that out real carefully. He also says it's a, a chattel slavery of mm -hmm. women, uh, which was more so uh, before the modern era. And uh, so basically, if, if, if you follow the socialist line of thinking, you'd get rid of private property. So that wouldn't be a problem. And then the state would provide everything. So certainly know many people who have been divorced. It's basically an issue of dividing up the property and then who provides for the children. Right. So, so the state does all, it all. Those would all be covered. Right. And, and therefore, you wouldn't need it. Right. And that's his whole point is that the yeah. state provides all those practical things, then you are now enabled to live your truly artistic life. So there are great critiques of marriage, but the thing is to replace it, uh, if, you, if you analyze it, I think you'd probably agree. Uh, you come up with something that's far worse. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious, though, because what you just said is you're removing your freedom. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. lose all of that. Yeah, and the state wants you. Yeah, and, and so I just, it's ironic. How... <laughs> <laughs> Don't expect consistency. Don't expect consistency. There'd be a lot of, a lot of uh, fancy uh, argumentation, but they've, uh, their suggestion is you're actually more free. Right. And I think you actually, you probably covered that. Well, and we will again, the idea of the, the definition of freedom, the definition of freedom is part of this. So for a while, freedom is being enabled to do whatever you want to do, to be authentic, right? For the ancient Greeks and Romans, freedom was freedom from the passions, right? That you were in control of yourself. Self-discipline was freedom. That's a huge, complete different definition of freedom, right? So for the ancient Greeks, it's self-control. For the ancient, I mean, for wild and for artists and for the postmoderns, it's being able to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Wild represents that, right? And even he might even hurt somebody else. Look at the Dorian Gray story. It's like, is this kind of like a dark fantasy of himself? Like, it's really hard to kind of understand. And so those are those that definition of freedom, that shift. So like, even when we talk about freedom in the Bible, when God talks about freedom, what does that kind of freedom look like? It's freedom from the burden of the law because Christ fulfilled the law, or it's freedom from sin. 
or it's freedom from slavery of sin. You know, we get all these imageries of freedom. Okay, what Wilde is doing is actually re-enabling slavery to yourself, slavery to sin, right? Those two things can't go together. What are you going to be a slave to, yourself, or are you going to be a slave to Christ? You can't be both, okay? You're going to have to give something up at some point, right? Christ says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Who doesn't gather with me scatters. I mean, there's a whole lot of scripture that we can go through on this, and maybe I should bring that in next time. But, I mean, you can't have both of these ideas. But, unfortunately, and this is what Truman says, and I know I need to let you go. What Truman says is that we as Christians, and he himself admits this too, we default to this thinking because it's such a part of our culture that we don't realize how inconsistent we're being. So, like, in the music we listen to, and I put that on here, the literature we read, the poetry we listen to, the, the television shows we watch, all those things, even though we know that this sort of thinking is problematic, when it's an artist that does it, we're like, well, that's just, that's just a rock musician. That's just what they do. Or, you know what I'm saying? Or, or like, and I'm guilty of the next person. What movies have I watched that are completely incompatible with the biblical worldview? Completely. Not just something that I can use as an analogy. Pastor Dinger's brilliant at using analogies, okay? Not that sort of thing. Like, I'm watching The Lord of the Rings to see that Gandalf is like a Christ figure. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about stuff that, from beginning to end, it could have won 13 Oscar awards, but it's beautiful trash, Okay, you know what I'm saying? It could be the most beautiful trash you've ever written, but it's still trash. Okay, and it might win 13 Oscars, but we justify it because it's art that's coming from well. And so that's a challenge for me. Right? You know, we're supposed to take every thought captive to Christ. We're supposed to set our mind on things above. Paul has numerous things where he says whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is praiseworthy. Think about those things. So that's a challenge for me in the culture in which we live to actually live that out in my media consumption and in what I, in what I, what I consume with culture. Just, just a challenge for us as we kind of go. I know I got some of you are going to the lake service, so let's uh, go ahead and do the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.